Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Tom Pickup, and we're once again chatting about the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die. You may think we're spending way too long on discussing the film, but if we can spend years getting hyped, then we can jolly well focus on it for a little bit longer, I'm afraid. Anyway, Really 007 is available on iTunes and Spotify and our Pod Dojo website. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks, guys, for listening and staying with us during this difficult time for some of us Bond fans. Special shout-out tonight to Bond fan Tom Brunt, who Rob and I saw at a wedding from one of our university mates in Sheffield uh, the other day. So that was great to see him, and hopefully we'll be able to have you on the podcast soon, Tom. But tonight we have regular contributor John Kell, who has been chomping at the bit to air his thoughts on this film, having now seen it twice. But again, we are blessed with two special guests. First of all, welcome back Stephen Carty, who... Previously joined us for our best henchman episode and our many, many, many hours long The Man with the Golden Gun review. But we say hello to Tom Mason, who made his debut on the Mammoth anniversary special, but he's getting his uh, proper full screen debut tonight. We can't wait to hear what you guys think. But first of all, good evening, gents. Hello. Evening, guys. Good evening. John, <laughs> John <laughs> you might have heard John's brief thoughts uh, sort of in the. In the rock alleyways, after we watched the, the film, it's pretty late, wasn't it? It was after midnight by the time we'd we got out. It was, of the film. Yeah. yeah, we were a bit tired. It's late. I'm tired, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll get onto it later in fuller detail. But it was quite funny to see John's reaction during some some points in the film. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> welcome, welcome, Stephen. Great to have you back, mate. Good to be here. The pleasure was all mine, or is all mine. I was trying to call that and you there, but... Yeah. <laughs> Apologies for the anniversary special. I think you had to wait until half 11. Uh, oh, until, <laughs> for the last section after it started at 8 o'clock, so, you know, 
Thank you for your patience. It, it was an epic one, that was. That yeah. was an, ep- an epic one. It was, day. yeah. I think we were all going blind by the end and just <laughs> had to go dizzy and everything. Yeah, it was a... Yeah. I mean, Tom Tom had to wait quite a long time too, so I, I apologise for that. But it was, it was good to have you on. I'm sure you were listening with intent uh, for the first three hours or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm still recovering from it. It's been weeks, but... It was it was fun. I really enjoyed hearing so many people's um, different opinions. It was it was nice. Controlling it all was a weird experience. I thought it wasn't going to make any sense. But somehow, when it was recorded, it it almost did make sense. Some of it, I think. Um, <laughs> anyway, here we are. It's good to good to finally sort of have you um, in the centre stage t- tonight. Just to sort of just tell us, how did you become a Bond fan? That is a <laughs> a long question. There was a, a a marathon back in 1999 of on ITV. I was seeing a marathon. It was sort of one every week. Um, yeah. I think it was like like a Thursday evening or something. And um, a few of my sort of older family members were already Bond fans from sort of I guess the Sean Connery era, um, the age of them. Uh, and and they just sort of said, oh, you know, why don't you nine year old child watch this? You know, don't know. It'll be great fun. And then I was kind of hooked ever since then. Like, and I really looked forward to watching every sort of Bond film every Thursday, whenever whenever it was, coming from school. And it was on like 8 o'clock at night. And I record them on VHS, as you did in the 90s, because that was the way of things. And it was great. And I just I was just kind of hooked from there. And I think I think World is Not Enough was, was the first one I saw at the cinema, because that the gold all kind of led up to that. There was one a week leading up to the um, the premiere of that. And that was... I was obviously far too young to go and see it, but... Uh, it must have done something good to still be interested in it 20 years later. Oh, that's so good to hear, yeah. John, was that the first one you saw at the cinema? It certainly was. Yeah, it, what what memories. What a film. We've never <laughs> had it so good. <laughs> we haven't really mentioned it on this podcast much, have we? But um, <laughs> I'm sure we will at some point. Yes, anyway, Tom, just tell us a bit about yourself as well. What What are you up to these days? Well, I'm doing a PhD at Newcastle University, Looking not at Bond, um, as I mentioned before, sadly, I wish I was, but it was um, sort of film musicals, the history of film musicals, um, something I got into fairly recently, and I've had a bit of an interest for a while, but but fairly recently sort of in depth. And yeah, like I'd, I'd like to do some stuff on, on Bond in the future, sort of, because I feel it gets kind of a bit of a bad rap academically, but not really, because... Some of the lot of film academics, I guess, are more <laughs> into mainstream crap when you start and like talk to them than you would expect. They're not like all foreign film sort of things. And there's a surprising amount of people who love Bond in it, but there's not anywhere near enough written about it. Um, so in in a, in a way that I think people can can access as well, because it doesn't all have to be sort of drilling down. I mean, things like this to me is you know far more valuable academic discussion of Bond than, than sort of like a book could be potentially. <laughs> There's been quite a few lovely books that we've all got, sort of encyclopedia books and books about the production of the film and you know, tie-in tie in pieces. But you're right, there aren't that many academic readings of James Bond. I know, obviously, we've had Kerry Edwards on here who mm. did, did a sort of one of those. Well, it's it more like a extended pamphlet, really. It was a, a, a huge essay, basically, on yeah. The Dalton films, which was superb, and it is, yes. I don't know that that got me thinking. There's, cer- there's certainly scope, Tom, to be doing something like that. I think. Yeah, I, I would. I would love to. Do, I don't know what exactly um, it would be. I'm really fascinated in, in in how these things developed, sort of during production. Like, for example, how much Diamonds Are Forever changed 
during its production. Like something like that. I would really love to sort of get into the mm. the archives of things and find out how it how these how they changed because the the so I know some some books um, like some kind of hero kind of touches on on some of those things like the the inside stories of how these were were made, but. I really think a big like deep dive in some of them. Like Tomorrow Never Dies, well, I know that's my favorite, my favorite Bond film, but I know it had so much mm. of behind the scenes going on. Like I would really love to sort of get my hands on some some archive stuff, which no one will probably ever be able to see, sadly, but I'd love to one day. Have you ever read any of the original scripts to the film, Tom? I have, yeah, yeah. I'm actually in a little sort of group on like a little chat group on Twitter with a few other people and where um we're, we're finding some of these old scripts and it's really fascinating some of the differences like i think they're planning on doing something either in, in a in a podcast form or a blog form at some point in the future discussing some of these things and it, it's good and it hopefully will be really fascinating because just just reading them and seeing the little even minor changes you think oh that's that's really interesting like um in thunderball when bluefell has the uh the Spectre briefing, and he talks about Jack Bouvard being killed. If you read the original script, that was supposed to be Rosa Klebb from From Us With Love. Mm. Actually, the, those wow. films are even more sort of interconnected in a sort of, not quite Craig era way, but, but uh, even more so than they already are. And I just think that's really interesting. And I don't know why they dropped that and changed it. I don't know whether they thought it would just wouldn't work, but things like that really fascinate me. That is brilliant. That is. Mm. And Wasn't I, I mean, I suppose I should give some credit as well to License to Queer, because that's the bit... Mm. You know, a bit more in, in depth than this sort yeah, of thing. It's, it's but, yes. Yeah, that that's like a I don't know a ready-made encyclopedia on some more interesting yeah, things yeah. in the Bond canon that haven't been explored before, and not just David, but like Sam Rogers' piece on mm. comparing the world is not enough with Honor Majesty's yeah. was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you could do a doctor on that. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stephen, you've obviously come from a you know a film critic background. Have you? found sort of, I don't know, colleagues and discussions of Bond on an academic level, maybe? don't know. I did a couple of essays on Bond at, at university because it was it was like, right, guys, you can go away and choose whatever topic you want. And I thought, well, okay, I know what, I know what I'm doing here. Um, and then did one. And then when it was, right, guys, you can pick whatever you want here for the second one. It was, I just got to look <laughs> as if to say, no, not again. And um, like Tom was saying, there's not really much existing literature out there. And I mean, this is completely anecdotal, but I've found whenever I've talked to academics about Bond, the general narrative or the general attitude that you get is, why would you be a big, why would Bond be your main series? It's regressive, it's sexist, it's not progressive. Like, what is it about the series you like? And eventually I just gave up and stopped telling people or academics that I was a Bond fan because I got sick of fighting the corner and saying, well, do you know what? There's, mm. there's actually loads to like about it. I, my main thing is is the music. I've, that's that was my way into the series, the Barry music. That's that's, mm. that's the thing I love yeah. most. If, if you had to pin me down, and then great performances from all the leads. You know, we've been so lucky to have all these great leads. Especially going back to the first, when you stop and think how lucky we are to get someone like Connery, yeah, to get a, a huge, talented, charismatic star who could properly, properly act before he was a thing. I mean, yeah. that's 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 so lucky to get someone like kind of like Robert Downey Jr. with the the Marvel films. They, they were lucky to have him. So there's so much to like about the series, and I, I, I don't know if Tom's experience in academia was the same as mine, but I just found whenever I spoke to an academic about Bond, it was almost like a closed door. It was almost like, why would you bother with that? It's just, it's it's old-fashioned, it's old hat. And I'd say, well, no, look at Octopussy. You've got people hanging off planes. You don't get that in any any action film. I just think there's so much to like about the series. And when I say that to people, they say, well, you're a Bond fan. Of course you're going to say that. And 
my comeback is always the same. No, I think I can be quite objective about these films. I can stand back and I could tear Octopussy to pieces for two hours. There's so much yeah. about it that's not good. There's there's so many flaws and errors in it, but so much to love. Just because Roger's running about in a clown suit for five minutes doesn't mean it's a joke. Some of the filmmaking in that is exceptional. I, I rewatched Octopussy two nights ago, and I always get to the same point with the train chase. You know when the train chase starts? I always think, am I going to think this is crap this time because I haven't watched it in six months? <laughs> is, is this nostalgia? Is, is the train going to be going really slow? And is it going to be obvious that Roger's hanging on to something outside the back of Pinewood? And am I going to think this is rubbish after watching Mission Impossible films? And then and then the train sequence starts, and I'm thinking, bloody hell, Martin Grace is lucky to have come away with his life here. Yeah. You know, his feet scraping along the floor. He's going under the train. He's on top of the train. He's running along the train. He's jumping over the train. The stunt work in that's a marvel. I don't know how you can watch stuff like that and not see this franchise as an important franchise, an influential franchise. And then, sorry to keep going on about Octopussy, but the, the scene when he's in the tent and he's he's um, diffusing the bomb, oh, I could watch that a million times and it's still so suspenseful. Just, damn it, man, there's a bomb in there. Just oh. watching it and I was, I was feeling like <laughs> I was on tenderhooks. And, just, and then Maud Adams does that really weird way she does of, of aiming the gun when she's like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have time you, for that, Lord. <laughs> yeah, just the whole sequence and... Uh, I, I I love it. I love so many things like that about this this series that I think just get written off because, well, Bond's a sexist. Well, maybe he had, does have really bad sexist, dodgy moments throughout the, the the series, but that doesn't mean he's not a compelling, interesting character. He doesn't need no, to be I, Captain America. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can look at him and you can say, well, I disapprove of that. I think it was maybe a bit dodgy and Thunderbolt, but there's lots of interesting stuff to dig into. And as a reflection of the years especially in terms of action cinema, as a reflection of the years, you can go back and watch the Bond films all the way through. And then you can, if you know what you're talking about, or if you've got a good sort of grasp on cinema, you can go, well, that's a reflection of 70s. That's, oh, that's, yeah, that's what 80s were all about. And it's really interesting now looking back at them, you can see where people like Christopher Nolan have watched them and went, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take that. Absolutely. Christopher Nolan must have been watching the Bond films and thought, oh, Dark Knight Rises, I'll have that plane bit at the start. And oh, okay, that bridge bit from License to Kill, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. I think the films get unfairly written off, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a massive, boring, obsessive, droning <laughs> fanboy. I just think there's so much good content in there if you're willing to look for it and look past the stuff that might be questionable today. I completely agree, Steve. I sometimes think that it's like it's just a victim of its own success, you know, in terms of that if something is has just been sustainable for 60 years, I mean, no film franchise does that. It's that... What what should we say? It's Anton Deck syndrome, isn't it? Is it the, <laughs> <laughs> it is though, isn't it? Like everyone's like, oh, they're on again, but there's mm. a reason yeah. why they're on because they're the best at what they do, and it's the same. Oh, James Bondsley, yeah, because it's a pioneering work, you know, and it's phenomenal and it's a staple of British cinema. And I'm so glad, just coming back, I'm so glad that Octopus is getting this renaissance at the moment as well. Everyone's going on about how great Octopus is, and it's like. I mean, I'm I'm the first one to admit I was never on the octopusy train. No pun intended. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's what a piece of work. It's it's my favourite Roger film these days. I think it's oh. tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no time to die. Um, well, well. <laughs> Can I just say one final thing that I think um, context is really important for this sort of thing. Now, what I mean by that is, um, see, from Russia with love. Are you guys familiar with Letterboxd? Have any of you got Letterboxd? Yeah, 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 yeah. So middle of lockdown, I watched From Russia With Love and then I just went through Letterboxd just sort of trawling the reviews just to have a look at 
I was really interested to see what today's youngsters would make of From Russia With Love because, you know, it's it's filmed from the early 60s. It's, mm. To them, it must be quite dated, quite slow. And I thought, well, we hold it up as this classic spy film. I wonder what youngsters will make of it. And there was this rash of one-star reviews across the board. Now, oh. if they don't like it, totally fair enough. You know, that I'm not here to tell anyone that they're wrong if they don't like From Russia With Love. But what was interesting was reading the reviews, it was, oh, my God, I can't believe he hit her. The slap, I've uh, read about this, but I can't actually believe it. Now, I, I can obviously have to say this. Hitting women is wrong. Violence against women, wrong. Horrible, all that sort of stuff. But surely with a film like From Russia With Love, you've got to look at the film in the context of that scene mm-hmm. where Bond has just discovered that his friend and ally has been murdered. He thinks that Tanya is setting him up to die. He thinks that she's involved in the plot. He's trying to get information out of her. So... <laughs> I don't think it's as easy as just looking at the scene and going, well, Connery hit a woman, it's a terrible film. Surely you've got to look at the context of the moment and what's happening with the story and the characters and say, in that moment, he thought he was getting set up to die. He thought he was in a bad place. He thought she was plotting to kill him. That's why he slapped her. Yeah, I mean, I think these things are black and white and there's, sorry, I I think these things aren't black and white. I think there's all these shades that are important to look at and I feel that they are sometimes lost in the haze of today's progressivism where we're so desperate to look back and say, well, that was wrong. That was wrong. I don't know if I've explained my point well there or not. Do you, no, you, no, I'm you have. You have. Cause I, there's a difference. Like I think Tom, did you mention, or it might've been you, Stephen, you mentioned Captain America, you know, it's, he's not hmm. a comic book hero. Hmm. He's not set up to be a brilliant example to everyone. Even from the Fleming, he's not, he's not a particularly likable guy. You could say in many respects and his job as a spy is not, a hero saving the world necessarily. It's a bit more complicated than that. And go back to information. Sometimes he's, you know, he feels the only way to do that is, is stuff that wouldn't get yeah. made now. But mm-hmm. it, it's a difference. And you can have, you can show all that kind of stuff today as long as it's filmed in a way that says, oh, we do realize we're showing this. This is awful. You're not meant to like this audience. Mm-hmm. Whereas when, you know, it was filmed then, it was just part of the thing. It wasn't like, Guys, this is oh, watch this scene with uh, what's her name, Dink. What you love this, and then watch the scene in with uh, that's getting criticised even by Kari Fukunaga. You know, fair enough in some respects, but the Thunderball, the the nurse scene, and it's like, yeah, the music maybe makes it seem a bit, you know, sort of, mm. oh, that's funny, but it's not. Anyway, I, I, it, you get into dark, you know, mm. difficult avenues of conversation with things like this, but yeah. in the context at the time. And come on, are we are we really saying that James Bond goes around behaving dreadfully the whole time? I don't think we are, are we? The, the one, the one that in that sort of subgenre of, of Bond scenes that I always think is kind of goes both sides of the line is is from the Man with the Golden Gun when he sort of roughs up Andre Anders, and a lot of yep. people criticise that scene from um, for Roger, and it, it is kind of out of tone for his Bond. But they say he goes a bit far, but in, in a way, I think that's a bit of a flaw of, of the film. And I actually really love The Man of the Golden Gun. But in, in context, exactly what Stephen's saying, in context, you can understand why he would be violent there. Because as far as yeah. the guy is aware, he's, she's pulled a gun on him. I mean, admittedly, he broke in, well, kind of getting in her hotel room. She pulled what a gun on him. And as far as he's aware, she's working for Scaramanga, who's trying to kill him. I think the way the scene falls down is that when it becomes clearly apparent that she's working against her will he should soften a bit and i think that's maybe where people look at and think oh that's just wrong it's he's being quite well and no it's, it's in context it makes sense the difference is that maybe the filmmaking there was wrong 
with the example from Russia with love, I don't think that's a problem at all. And I think that's just as as exactly what Stephen's saying. You can't you can't just look back on films made fifty odd years ago and like, oh, you should have made that. Now, well, maybe they should have done, but they should have done a lot of things differently fifty years ago. And it's it's so overly simplistic and reductive to say that this film's mm. one star out of five. When frankly, I think out of all of the Connery films, if I was going to pick one, and, and it's not even my favorite by a long way, if I was going to pick one Connery film to show somebody who was interested in, you know, quote-unquote cinema, but not Bond, I would probably pick From Much of the Love, because it's closest to yeah. sort of a Hitchcock film. It's 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 yeah. it's a very well-made film. Um, it doesn't really have any of the sort of the, the tropes that crop in in Goldfinger, or, or You Only Live Twice, and it's maybe less vanilla than Dr. No. It's got a bit of spy, sickly intrigue to it. And so I think one star for that film is just, no, that's insane. <laughs> really, I know I, I appreciate people's opinions, but that's insane. I think there's a difference between the the critics' view and kids today in inverted commas, mm-hmm. isn't there? Because the critics still hold from Russia with Love up as top five, at least top three, probably mm-hmm. Bond films, don't they? So it is like you say, Stephen. It's the worry that at some point will the will the earlier ones be a bit too slow? And I know you wouldn't necessarily show your kids some of those early ones just yet. Oh, I will. I will absolutely. <laughs> when I have a kid, oh, yeah, yeah. right? Here's fucking oh, no. Connery. You're gonna like this. Here's Connery. There's Roger. There's Tim. You're gonna fucking like these. Or that's it. <laughs> yeah, <know>? well, yeah. <laughs> but um, we were saying, uh, I was on a DM chat with some other Bond fans the other day, and we were saying, I wonder if we are the last group now that will be heavily into Connery, and then Moore are 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 those fans like phasing out slowly but surely? Because fans today have different ideas of what they want from film. You know, the, the the Netflix generation or whatever you want to call them, the youngsters, they want things to move fast. They want things to have pace and a certain rhythm. And will they watch Doctor No and go, this is boring? And then will that then move on to in 10, 15 years, oh, the spy who loved me, that's too old That's too old for me. I can't connect with that anymore. You know, will, will they just keep moving on? And I don't know, it makes me sad to think about. It's That's a harrowing thought, isn't it? Mm. Oh. <laughs> so Moonraker, though, definitely. I, I love Moonraker. Oh, Moonraker! Everyone, awesome. everyone should. Everyone should love Moonraker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in schools. Right. Well, I think, chaps, we we should go on to this film, the the elephant in the room. No time to die. Forgotten we were talking about it then for for a second. Um, I'll start with I'll start with Stephen because I don't know whether you saw it early. Did you see a press screening of it huh, in Scotland? Press screenings? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they never give us press screens of uh, of Bond in Scotland. Never. Um, so I was reviewing it on radio on the day that it came out on the Thursday, and I was terrified I was going to have to do what I've done before, and that's go to the very very first screening early in the day. And then maybe have to leave early and run all the way to the, the studio to review it, um, which would have been bad for no time to die because I would have missed what happened at the end, <laughs> which is really important. Um, but I ended up going to see it at a midnight screening the night before, and um, it was an odd experience to say the least seeing it at that time because you guys have been to Cineworld before, so you know the drill. You know, if it starts at midnight, it doesn't start till 25 past. Mm-hmm. So we were all in the foyer about quarter past three talking about it and there was just an odd atmosphere and I was not a fan the first time I came out. I wasn't quite as um, bloodthirsty, shall we say, as John was after his, his <laughs> post-match review, but I, was, uh, I, was, yeah, I wasn't too happy. The, all the people I was with were really happy. Um, there was a couple of casuals that loved it. There was a couple of 
hardcore cinephiles who aren't hardcore Bond fans and they really liked it. I was the downer that night when I first saw it and I'm glad I went back to see it again because my opinion has changed. I still have, I still think there's a lot of failings. I still think there's a lot of flaws. I still think I'm at the stage now where I, I want to stop looking at it because the more I look and pick things apart, um, it doesn't really hold together or hang together. And I don't know if any of you guys have watched any of the interviews at the premiere with Michael G. Wilson, but Michael G. Wilson was pretty much saying, oh, yeah, the script was a disaster. Yeah, the script was a mess. Uh, oh, yeah, it was pulled together at the last minute. And I'm just thinking, Michael, where's your, where's your PR skills? You know, almost was kept waiting on Barbara coming over and putting her hand over his mouth. Um, yeah, if you watch this film, you can tell that there, there were script issues. You can tell that uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was brought in after the story was in place and various scenes and parts of the film don't really fit with others. And I guess by now you've all read the stories that scenes with Bond and M were filmed not knowing what the dialogue was going to actually mean and how it was going to fit into the film. And mm. when you read stuff like that and then you watch the final film, it does it makes more sense. You can think, right, okay, I can see where that doesn't fit. I can see where that's it's not an ideal way to make a film. And but all that being said, it made me feel something. There were scenes in it that made me sort of go, Oh yes, yeah, I'm really into this now. And it wasn't as bad as I was expecting not as good as I was hoping for. Um, I would still say it's miles away from Casino Royale and Skyfall. Mm -hmm. um, do I like it more than Quantum of Solace? Not entirely sure. There's reasons, I suppose, why with each film, with each Bond film, of course, you know, you want to see them a few times and yeah. even ones you've seen over the years, like, like saying John Octopussy, it's not mm -hmm. a case of you need, oh, I need loads of, I've needed viewings since, you know, since I was born. I need hundreds of viewings for me to finally like it a bit mm -hmm. more. Sometimes the kind of mood you're in, that depends. Yeah. And that you, your taste changes as you grow older sometimes. I think it's more that what happens in the film that if you are not on board with the huge story choices, then it becomes a bit yeah. more difficult to sort of accept yeah. them. You can appreciate the film on a technical level, of course, more when you see it a few times. But the pro <laughs> I know the problem for you were the, the story choices, weren't they, really? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I deliberately didn't want to come on a podcast until I'd watched it a second time because I came. I, I'm naturally quite an emotional, reactive person, and uh, when I when I saw that film, I wanted to break stuff. To be quite honest, uh, it 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 made me very very angry. Not just with the choice of what they did, more the execution of how they did it. Um, was more my issue, and I'll go into that later. And I didn't want to go on a podcast again until I'd seen it a second time because I felt if I was just going to go on again, I'd just rant. I wouldn't make sense, and people don't want to listen to that. Then, so I want to watch it again without any um, of the really double oh seven crew just going with a friend and just watching it. And I think I've got a far more reasoned view of it. There's things I enjoy in it. There's things that are good and done well and it's competent in parts. But ultimately, I can't get away from the fact that this is the film that killed James Bond. Mm -hmm. I just can't get away from that. And some people think that's a bold choice and that's fine. I don't want to discredit that. I don't. I personally think it was the only choice for the Craig era because they've been making excessive choice after excessive choice throughout the whole thing. And you can't have James Bond driving off into a sunset because that was Spectre. So the only way to finish this was to kill him. So I was expecting it at this, before I went in. 
I think what annoyed me more was how it was done and how it was written. And we'll talk about that later. But what I do want to say is I don't just want to get on my soapbox about that because there is a lot of stuff in the film that is really enjoyable. And Mm. um, like for me, it's a far better film than Spectre and Quantum of Solace. It's probably it's it's a better film than Die Another Day, but I couldn't rank it higher than Die Another Day because of what it does ultimately, and that's my issue with it. <laughs> Tom, I'm looking to you now. You, when you went into it, the first thing we always say about it is we because of Spectre and the sort of knowing that it was a continuation with Madeline involved. Hmm. I suppose we we realised that it wouldn't just be a one-off Bond film like, for instance, Skyfall was, that there had to be some connection and the assumption that it was all going to end, you know, that this cycle would end somehow. Did that make you think that it it might do some drastic, in inverted commas, things with the, the franchise? The first thing I should say is I'm probably the imposter in the room that I actually liked Spectre. <laughs> I actually quite Yeah, well, it. yeah. yeah. I, I didn't like the, the Blofeld being Bond's brother, twist as i don't think anybody liked probably not even the people who wrote that like that as a, as, as a as a more sort of i find it strange to say this considering it's a film where james bond gets drills into his skull as a more light-hearted romp than some of the craig films have been and mm. it harking off yeah. more of the classic films i and i enjoyed it as just an experience and not only that i enjoyed the ending of exactly as you said james bond driving off and he has a happy ending because christ for, if you look back on the things, I mean, other than arguably maybe Lazenby, who only had one film, Craig's Bond got put through a lot of stuff, mm. you know, in in those films, like tortured, really, if you think about it, literally and metaphorically. Mm. And it just to have him have a happy ending was something I I really liked. I was like, great, fantastic. That maybe tells you my thoughts on where they went on No Time yeah. to Die and why I wasn't really a fan of it. I It's exactly the same. I knew that was kind of where they're going to go. I, I put a blog up bef- sort of a few days before the premiere of my sort of predictions of what I thought was going to happen. And I was depressingly on the nose. I knew Blofeld was going to die in that scene. Not only that, I knew it was going to be because there was some sort of virus that Bond was going to infect him with. And the only reason I knew that was because the, in the trailer, they had a big, big glass thing between him and Bond mm-hmm. that came down. I was like, okay, obviously he's going to get killed off and obviously it's going to be something to do with the virus. I knew the last line was going to be J- Bond, James Bond, because Purvis and Wade can't help themselves. I knew it was going to be that. It was going to have to you know, echo the first film. So I wasn't... The only thing that really surprised me was the way they handled Felix. But other than that, it was kind of unsurprising it was it was just i kind of didn't want them to do all that stuff and they did it anyway so yeah i mean i i saw it the first time at like a like a nice event at the everyman in newcastle and they gave out free drinks and it was great and i really enjoyed the experience and i came away absolutely deflated then i saw it a second time and was just as deflated, really. Oh, it improve after after a second view. Like it's a very well made film. It's just not the mm-hmm. Bond film I wanted. So yeah, it's a bit awkward, really. Tom, we were mentioning earlier that uh, one thing because it's taken so long to come to the screen that Daniel Craig perhaps looks a little bit older 
mm. than, uh, than he would have done if it had. Well, no, but he, when it was filmed, it was still filmed in 2019, mm. wasn't it? So that shouldn't make a difference. But I don't know whether that's made any bearing on anything. He definitely does. I, I think he, like, because I've been re editing Spectre, because I mentioned in passing to you that I, I did a Tomorrow Never Dies edit, putting all the deleted scenes back in. And I really enjoyed that. And people were saying, "Can you do Spectre and take the yellow, the yellow filter off?" And I was like, "Yeah, okay, fine, I'll do that." And also, like again, I kind of I enjoy Spectre, but it has kind of some editing and pacing issues that I'll go through and change that around. So I've, I've spent a lot of time with that recently. And the more time I spent editing that, looking at Daniel Craig and think he's aged. I mean, again, like I say, he looks brilliant for the age years, but he aged noticeably for me between spectre and no time that i i don't maybe it's a good th- i know because it was supposed to pre-title is supposed to happen directly after spectre i was gonna say in a way maybe it's a good thing because the most of the film is supposed to be like five years later that he aged since we weren't you so noticeable aging but yeah again all i can say is if i look as good as he does at his age i'll be happy like i'm not going to go anywhere yeah. <laughs> you know roger was 58 wasn't he and yeah you know didn't he have his mole removed but he, <laughs> mm. he did look he did look slightly different to octopusy i don't know I mean, he still look, he still look good enough for me, but mm. I don't I don't think we're going to be getting complaints at all that Daniel was too too old no. for this. No, no, I think it's been a in ter- if you're going to go through a a 15 year period, he's mm. probably had the right age to start and the right age to end. Unless you're going for a completely different route, starting Bond in his 20s, you know that I presume he would have been a uh, in the navy still then, wouldn't he? And it wouldn't quite it wouldn't quite tally with being double O agent, so. Mm. In terms of the next Bond, we might get onto that later. But first of all, yeah, so Daniel Craig's performance, Stephen, did you think it was his best or perhaps his most rounded? I don't think it was his best or his most rounded. I thought it was his funniest. Uh, he made me laugh yeah. about three or four times. I I really liked his interactions with Tanner in this film. Like, you know, when he's getting exasperated with Tanner walking <laughs> along the corridor, like, Tanner, for God's sake! I really liked all that sort of stuff. I liked the line, you know, when he's in M's office and M's getting a bit flustered and is chugging on bourbon or whatever. He says, my God, you're thirsty. I thought he was very funny in this film. And, I mean, he can do the intensity in the, the, the drama. We know that. I, I felt that he was a bit more relaxed in this film than mm. Skyfall Inspector. And Skyfall Inspector... I mean, this might not have been his fault, but I felt that he was too much of his dialogue is these sort of short, clipped, trailer-friendly lines like, oh, Q can't fly. Oh, of course not. Or what are your hobbies? Resurrection. You know, it doesn't really sound like a human being when he's saying these lines, mm. but even just in the very first scene of this film when he's like, are we going to have a fight to Madeline? It just felt like the way he sounded in Casino Royale, like a, a bit more natural, a bit more relaxed, a bit more like a human being. I really like that aspect of his performance um, I thought he was great all the way through. Some scenes better than other. And can can we talk about the the ending now, or do you want to save that? Of course, you can. No, yeah, there's no. <laughs> we don't have to do it chronologically tonight, Stephen. We're, okay. We're, otherwise, so, we'd be here hours. Yeah. <laughs> you guys were talking about the ending in terms of the, the execution and the decision to it. I had no problem with the decision to it. My issues with the ending and killing Bond were were all execution. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I didn't really like the final shot. It just felt a bit digital to me. The logic of it as well was slightly, slightly, I wasn't clear on it the first time. The, the more I've sort of thought about it and talked to people, I suppose it does almost make sense. You know, he got shot about four or five times and mm-hmm. it wasn't just that he could never touch Madeline again. It was that he would maybe, if he touched someone and then they touched Madeline again, which is just nonsense. But it, it was more like if he was, you know, bullet ridden and it was the safest thing for him just to take himself out of the equation and she would never be killed. And yeah, that, that does make sense. But I had, so I had issues with that. 
and the reason I'm mentioning this is because you asked about his performance. I, I did think that the death scene worked for me on two levels and it got me a bit emotional in the second viewing because one, Hans Zimmer's music, I, mm-hmm. I really like, it's called Final Ascent. So when he's in um, the sort of pool of water and he snaps Safin's arm, which I loved, and he snapped the arm and then you see, you can see it registering on Bond's eyes that, shit, this might be it for me. I, I can never touch her again. You know, there's that moment of recognition that he doesn't have to say it. The finale for me worked because of the music and his performance. I think he really sold it well. I, I mean, I, I hated the fact that he got up on the roof and spoke to Madeline and said, you have all the time in the world. And I just thought that was so clumsy and unnecessary. And I just think when you've got an actor as good as him, he's so good at conveying stuff without saying stuff and with his eyes. And I just would have loved a bit more subtlety in the moment. I would have loved there have been a way for him to do it without saying that line. Cause it just, I, I mean, it's basic screenwriting that having that line It's it's at the start of the film, they say we have all the time in the world. And then, so it's that kind of cyclical thing where we're going to go back to something that we said at the start to give it that, that feeling. So I can see why the screenwriters have done it, but mm-hmm. I just think his performance was good enough to sell the moment and sell the scene without having a line like that. That just felt manipulative to me, but that's a really long-winded way of answering your question. That I did think his performance was very good in it. No, that's, that's fair, I think. And Tom, was it a, a good end performance for Danny Craig, do you think? Yes. I think everybody in that film gave a good performance, with one exception, and that was Obrachev, which I, is, is, as a Brosnan fan and a Moore fan, I find that I'm sound a bit hypocritical saying this, but his his delivery was off the whole way through. It didn't work for me. But I think everybody else was good, was, was, was a good performance. It wasn't Craig's... To me, Craig's best literary Bond performance is Layer Cake, for all those reasons. <laughs> his best screen Bond one is between Spectre and Casino Royale. I like, I like the sort of Connery Moore vibe he's going for in Spectre. And I, Casino Royale, I just think he nailed it in every scene, just about it was perfect. But it was still very good performance to talk a bit about the ending and why it didn't work for me in the same way is is kind of context really <laughs> as much as content and execution it, it was context and i sound almost unfair saying it because i know how this film was made and i know it was in the can for about 18 months before it was released but essentially what you the situation you have is james bond committing suicide almost. i know he's been yeah. shot yeah but he he's the great survivor and he gives up. He, he gets there, yeah. he gives up. And the thing that really gets me is in the current situation you have in the world, to release a film where James Bond is infected by a virus and decides he'd rather kill himself than ever see his family again just seems really clumsy to me because that's what people have literally been living in the last, you know, 18 months is I've been infected with something. Should I see my family again? You know, or whatever. Other day? Well, no. It's, it's that's the choice people have been making, and it seems a bit strange to have James Bond decide he'd rather die than infect somebody with it. Because who created this nanovirus was Obuchev working with MI6, and in the previous film, Q has been shown to create nanobots for the smartphone. So, I think if anybody can think of a cure, it would be Q and MI6, surely. So, surely he could he could quarantine himself for a while, but he just he just gives up. And like, yeah, fine. I think, again, it was just, it's context and also execution. I feel exactly the same way that if it was a situation where he just, he's been shot and he couldn't get out, yeah, fine, I'd buy it. But the fact is he gets up on the top and then just starts talking and he's like, yeah, fine, we got the missiles kill me mm-hmm. because I'd rather die than see the people I love again. And it's just, that's, to me, that just, 
again, after the way things have been the last few months and the last year and a bit, just felt like tonally off. And again, I can't hold that against the film personally because that was made in a totally different, literally a different world. But just in context, just didn't sit right with me then, if you know what I mean. Not many people have said that. I, I, there's a whole, you know, social distance and masks. And all. Mm. <laughs> like, it is possible to to lead a decent life via Zoom and all. <laughs> but it's that then people come back and they've said, no, hang on, it isn't just if he touches them, it's if he touches someone who then touches mm. someone who then touches someone, which I think people have been saying that is that is actually a bit clearer than I perhaps picked up on the first time. But... To a general audience, it's a bit weird and complicated, a thing to... If you're going to kill Bond, I'd have just done it. I mean, I would never kill Bond, but if you were going to do it, make it not complicated and a heroic act. I know it looked at one stage, I thought it was going to be a sort of Mayday-type death, Mm. but then it'd be like, they're not going to copy that, are they? Then I thought, you know, it was obviously a bit of Rogue One elements to it. 100%. As in cinematically how it looked. Yeah. The ambiguities, were they there deliberately? Like the fact that he was bleeding, was that there deliberately to think, oh, well, he might have died anyway? Then the ambiguous ending full stop would have been the Dark Knight Rises ending. So they thought, well, that might have been a bit of a copy as well. I don't know whether they listened to us saying that, you know, that Batman Batman begins Casino Royale and then definitely Skyfall with the Dark Knight. I don't know whether they thought we can't keep making it that obvious. Mm -hmm. But the whole era, I think somebody was saying it, the whole Craig area has had a death, a big death in nearly every film. So obviously Vesper, which is in the book, I'm not, not disputing that. And then Quantum of Solace, Mathis, Skyfall, M, then uh, Spectre, we've got Mr. White. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then and then in No Time to Die, Felix is dead. So that's a, you know, right, we've done that. Anything goes, lads, here. We, could, we can really push the envelope out. Then the kid, we'll, we'll get into that in more detail later. But Blofeld died as well. Oh yeah, and, of course. And that, and that is being overlooked. Blofeld that has been pissed Blofeld. me off so much. Yeah. Blofeld has been I, seven films. He that, is, that, is, that is one of the things that angered me because exactly as you say, he's been around as you say in seven films. He's never had a satisfying death. What do you think of Diamonds Are Forever and the way he went out in the sort of the classic thing? And for your eyes only, I guess, if you can look yeah. at it that way. Yeah. Even yeah. more. Because <laughs> <laughs> like I say, I knew it was, was going to happen. Yes, it was going to be. And it just totally lived up to my expectations of if that's what it was. And it just it just felt so so unsatisfying to me. And 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 I know a lot of people like Safin and dislike the Waltz Below felt, and that's fine. But I feel like tonally the film would have worked better for me if if the, if Blofeld had been the villain and if 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 he'd killed Bond, yeah, at least have had the build-up of Spectre. And if they could try and try and execute Blofeld better in this film, and if he'd been the main th- thing that ultimately killed him, might have settled better with me. Then, oh yeah, he has this loose end from the last film. Yeah, just, well, you know, he's he's gone. Don't worry about him. I know he didn't like Spectre. Don't worry about it. He's dead. He's dead. Just move on. It's fine. We've got this new guy. He's called Safin. He killed Blofeld. He was the big bad from the last film. So that means he's got to be worse. You know, it's like it. I don't know. It just it. If you think of how many hoops Eon had to jump through to get Eon inspect, uh, get Blofeld inspector back, and the killing yeah. off <laughs> the way they did, it was like I mean I don't know. I loved the callback to the the Eon of Twice novel. A lot of people dislike the line "the die Blofeld die." Said it was cheesy, and I suppose it kind of is, but it's direct rip from Fleming. I mean I've got to love them for bringing that in. Um, but other than that, I'm like I don't know. I wish 
it's got to be you kill Blofeld off. It's got to be you know something dramatically satisfying, surely. I think that was partly it, wasn't it? That Spectre didn't go down well, particularly the Blofeld thing. But that was mm. it. Wasn't necessarily Christoph Volt's performance. It was the way he was handled within the story and the whole stepbrother thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they were confident enough that we can have Blofeld as the main villain again. Exactly. And even Christoph Waltz didn't sign on until later, so I don't even know whether he was in the, the original script even, perhaps. Mm. And that, of course, the whole bit in Cuba is a sort of, heck, we better somehow get rid of Blofeld, otherwise what's the point of any of this? And Safin, we've got to create him as the main villain. Mm. Still don't really know why why he was bothered about any of this, but anyway... It's it's too much to do. They had too much to do, mm. and it, in some ways, fair play to Carrie. I think we said for somehow making a film with all these massive threads that he had to do, but by adding more, it, it makes it even more difficult. And somehow, you know, it's not it's not a disaster. I'm not, I know I'm not a fan of the film, but mm. yeah, it's melded together in a way that just about makes sense. And as a film, it works. So I'll, I'll give them that. If you're enjoying Really 007, why not follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? Look us up at Really 007 Pod. If you do not, you will be shot! I think that in a few years' time, we're going to, like, well, over the years, I think we'll be drip-fed details about the production of this film, and I wouldn't be surprised if you hear that, you know, it was a bit of a disaster behind the scenes, and it was... And we might have a, a bit of a growing respect for the way that, as you see, Carrie's maybe pulled things together or someone's pulled things together. But I just want to touch on Blofeld there and say something that might be possibly controversial. Now, I don't know if we've ever had a really good Blofeld. Now, before anyone cancels my James Bond fan member, I, I really like the unseen Blofelds from the early Connery films, Absolutely. but they're not really yeah. in the film enough to make a huge impact. Um, I, I, I really enjoy Charles Gray in Diamonds Are Forever. I think, you know, he's a lot of fun. Like, making mud pies, 007, you know, he is, <laughs> he's, he's fun and watchable. But when I look at him, I don't really think Blofeld, I think, oh, there's campy Charles Gray having a bit of fun. And mm-hmm. Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice, and he's the iconic Blofeld. He's the one with the scar and the volcano and the cat. He's the one we all think of. But when you watch You Only Live Twice, back, he's barely in the film. Mm-hmm. He's sure. hardly in it. And he is a bit... OTT, a bit psychotic in that film. And then, of course, the one that many people like and maybe the best is um, Terry Savalas as Blofeld and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But I do like him. I'm constantly dis- distracted by the way he holds his cigarette. And he's such a sort of cool, rugged swinger. And when they, they go skiing after Bond, he goes skiing after them. It's just not my idea of Blofeld. To me, Blofeld's the guy up in the tower, not the guy yeah. out there doing the stuff. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I don't know if we've ever had a definitive Blofeld. And the reason I mention this is just Tom got me thinking there when he was talking about Blofeld being the villain in this. I think I would have preferred that now that I think about it because when Christoph Waltz was announced as Blofeld, I thought, yeah, that's perfect. That's that's good. Mm, that is, that's yeah, really yeah. good casting. He could do something with that. I don't actually mind him inspect. I hate, I don't like the Blofeld, no. uh, the, Bro, the Brofeld thing doesn't work for me and it's clumsy and the way that they try and retrospectively tie all the, the films together doesn't work at all. But I don't think there's anything wrong with his performance and, before No Time to Die came out, a lot of people were worried that this film was going to be Spectre 2.0. And I know a lot of fans were, were sort of, oh, God, why are they bringing Blofeld back? And, oh, he's going to be in prison and this is just going to be lame. That that was one of the aspects I was most excited about was seeing maybe yeah. they can sort of casually brush the brother thing under the carpet and just have him as this, as this villain. And uh, it was one of the biggest missed opportunities in this film to me was him only being in, I suppose it's just one long scene, isn't it, that he's in and, 
uh, again, he's fine, but I just would have loved him to have been bigger in the film and more in the film. And some some of the things that stuck out to me in this film that didn't work, just small details. I hated the way that he called him Blofeld. I really hated yes, the way yes. when he walked in and called him Blofeld because I was thinking, you didn't grow up together, but you spent a lot of time together as kids. You would come in and you would refer to him as Franz because mm. that's how he knew him. Franz, wasn't it? Yeah. Franz over mm. there. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. When he walked into the cell, he would have been like, oh, Franz, how's it going? I hated the way he came in and went, oh, Blofeld. Like, he's not Blofeld yeah. to you. That's the yeah. name he made the up the last time you met. Yeah. I think there was a, an opportunity there. I mean, again, people who don't like Spectre wouldn't, Okay, anyway, but exactly as you say, I think it was an opportunity again. I'm going about that die Blofeld die line. If he'd been calling him Franz beforehand and then started trying to kill him and then was calling him Blofeld because they already made that quite clear distinction of the dichotomy between Franz Oberhauser and Blofeld saw himself as dying in that climate accident and then he became Blofeld. Like Bond, mm. Bond wasn't trying to kill the guy who he grew up with, he was trying to kill Blofeld. That to me was a different person, and I, I think that's a, a, a very good point and I, I i've just all i can think watching that film as much as i respect rami malik and why he didn't it was i wish the final if you're going to make the same film just have him strangling christoph waltz in that pool at the end shouting die blofeld die to me that'd be a much more satisfying film it would be it'd be yeah. kind of a direct sequel to the to specter and you could keep the same things in place and build you know just just i feel you could have you had that credit, and maybe not so much because people didn't like Spectre, but a lot of people didn't like it, but you had kind of the credit of an existing character in the bank. And I think one of the main reasons why I found Bond's death unsatisfying in a way was because it was from Safin. And that's a, a new character, which is fine, but it's a guy who's barely in the in a three-and-a-half-hour-long film. He's in it for, like, 20 minutes. And it's 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 just, to me, it's like, who is this guy? He's in it a bit, and it's like, he's more like... Madeline's villain than Bond's villain, if you know what I mean. He's, yep. he, it just doesn't really work as well for me, even though the performance is good. And so that's one of the main issues I had. I'll kind of share my thoughts on the ending and with Craig. I'll probably have to give a bit of context with it to start. The first thing I'd say is, is that obviously it was quite well known that Barbara Broccoli waited two years two years for uh, Daniel to change his mind and come back round after Spectre. She waited two years. She wasn't ready to let go. And, and I don't want to get on a big hot thing about how Daniel said he'd rather slit his wrist and all that. Mm. But all we know is, is that Daniel was at a position to let go of it. And she wasn't. So ultimately, she came back two years later and it shared that they found a script or they found a way to finalize Craig's tenure. And you can only you can only presume because of what had previously happened that finalization was Bond dying that that was what was sold to him. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Bit of context. So in AJ Chowdhury's book, uh, Some Kind of Hero, it talks about after you only live twice and Connery wasn't particularly happy and he was holding out for 10% of the gross. And Saltzman, in Feb 68, Saltzman comes to Broccoli and he tells him Connery wants to do it. And Broccoli's response, it says that Broccoli was chagrined by his star's attitude. Has anyone asked us if we would want him to do it? The point is, is, is that Broccoli understood that no character, no actor is bigger than the character of James Bond. And if somebody doesn't want to do it, they don't do it because we want James Bond and we want someone to do it. And obviously, obviously they got Lazenby in. I love that film. I know at the time we obviously there was a big cry back and Connery came back. But the point is, is that no actor is bigger than James Bond. Now, Bob Broccoli obviously has taken a different route, and she's gone to the route of selling to Daniel Craig to return. And we can only presume that the the enticement to get Daniel Craig back is to kill the character of James Bond. And now, after listening to James Bond and Friends podcast the other week, and from what Tom was inferring before, it's, it's quite well known now that the reason, the main reason why Danny Boyle left the uh, directing was because he disagreed with this decision. So if you are going to kill James Bond, I personally don't think you should, because I think if you are going to kill James Bond, ultimately, that's the end of the series. That's how it should be. Now, I know people argue that, oh, but Craig's a reboot. It's its own separate universe. Fine. But this film is at pains to not be that. This film... Yeah has like we have all it has more on a majesty's secret service and other bond film references than die another day does and die another day hammers you over the head with references but this from the dots and O spots on the start to the majesty's theme tune to the for your eyes only like um references of killing logan ash it's all there they are really trying to tie in james bond the whole character. So if you are going to do that, the death of the character of James Bond has to be consistent with the whole character of those 25 years, not just this era. And throughout that era, there is throughout the whole of James Bond, he has dealt with tragedy. And we have seen him in stuff like uh, Majesty's, obviously his wife dying. We have seen Felix being maimed in License to Kill. And he has had he has been hurt by these things he has gone off on tangents and revenge missions but ultimately he has always consistently come back to work for queen and country that is his job he is a spy and he does this now i know now so if james bond is going to die the only consistent way that he's dying is dying as a hero to save the world that is the only way that that character can be killed, and they don't do that because they start with that. They start with references about if you know the world will be gone if if he doesn't destroy this island and all the rest of it. But they can't help 
but then put Safin, who has zero personal ties to James Bond whatsoever. He's not his brother. He doesn't have any any ties whatsoever with him. But then they put him that he has the file of Nanobot so that he can't go and see Madeline. That They make it personal. They move away from saving the world and they make it personal. But then Safin is killed. Safin is killed. And as far as we know, the two ships that were coming to get the first set of nanobots had not set off. So that virus is contained on that island. The only way, the only reason for destroying that virus on that island is to cover up M's mistake because he has other countries asking why he's got ships setting missiles off at an island. So James Bond is not doing this to save the world. He's doing it to cover M's back. On top of that, when it actually happens, yes, he gets shot, but I still believe that if he got shot, the James Bond I know and love would at least attempt to get off the island to try and make away with it. And he doesn't. He gives up. It is so inconsistent with the character that I have watched and loved in all incarnations. And I'm not anti-Craig. I think Casino Royale is a phenomenal film, and I think it's a brilliant performance. I really like Skyfall too. But this ending is the most inconsistent and harmful ending it could possibly ever have been. And I think the, the thing is that they're trying to sell it as a love story for what it's doing it, but the problem is is that Q outperforms them all, and he's the one who brings the emotion. You've got Madeline. You've got Madeline, who's there, like listening to it. But it's the shots of Q that are the ones that are upset because yeah. he's the Absolutely. one who he outacts them all. And then at the end, M, who's got away with it, because at the end of the day, M's ultimately responsible for this. Oh, we'll have a glass of whiskey and we'll just to James. It's absolute sacrilege. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that I, that's that's my vicious rant over. I'll I'll be trying to be more consistent. <laughs> anyone any anyone want to come back to any of that? I will I will say I agree wholeheartedly with a lot of what you say. And again, going back to something I I said again, it's 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 he gets shot. But the problem is, I think there were again you're in two poles when you make this film. He's been shot. So you'd think, okay, so he can't escape. But they can't make Craig's Bond look weak. So he has to limp up to the top. And like, But that makes you think, well, then theoretically, surely you can try it. He isn't that badly wounded because he can get up there without any noticeable difficulty. I know he's limping, but he's, he's, he seems okay. Whereas if he'd been shot and like was lying there bleeding out, you'd be like, okay, yeah, he's going to die anyway. Yeah, fine, I can maybe accept this. But the other thing, again, as you, as you kind of touched on, and what I was saying is that, again, it's unfortunate for the film coming out when it did in a world that they couldn't possibly have predicted. But to me, we've had so many medical miracles over the last sort of year and a bit that you know you would give up because you've got a nanobot virus, which to me is surely more treatable than an organic virus because you can EMP that. You can you can have the, again. MI six developed it. They have surely got ways of getting around this. Gadget, the, the bionic eye that. Exactly. <laughs> things there was. I mean, when surely I, I don't know, but surely when they injected him with the smart blood nanobots inspector, they were going to be bloodstream forever. I mean, maybe they were. They would just delete the files or whatever, like they do in the film. But 
Like, surely, like, oh, you've already set this up <laughs> that you know what nanobots are. You can't just bring them in and be like, oh, yeah, well, the guy, you, know, you can't ever touch anybody ever again. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe, but again, it's just to me, in, in the world it's in, like, I know it's unfortunate. I, I feel almost bad for criticizing the film that was made at a different, literally a different time in the time that I was in, but I can only look at it in the context that I'm in, and it just didn't work for me like that. Because as you say, James Bond to me is the great overcomer and survivor, and he gets through the... And that's why I've looked to him personally in times when I've been in a bad place, like when I was younger, and, and, and it's, it's I've no other people have said the ending worked for them because they've done the same thing, which I can totally respect. I'm really pleased genuinely for people that have taken something from it and but to me it just didn't it took me back to when i was you know younger and i had family members dying of cancer and things and i would seek solace in watching bond films because he he the world the rules didn't seem to apply to him and now when i see bond dying all i can say is like oh my granddad's dying again as like it's 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 not right to me and i'm just Again, I, I just want to reiterate that I, I feel really pleased with the ending works for. I don't want to just, you know, shit on their prey. Like, it, genuinely, it works really well for me. Uh, for, for them, sorry. It just doesn't work for me for the reasons that I've discussed. But I don't know. It's, maybe I'm looking at it too personally. I'm, I'm drawing too much personal conclusions. But I, I just, it doesn't, it's not something that I, I'm not totally against them killing Bond. Just as you say, in the context that it happened, wasn't quite right for me. I think that's totally fair, Tom. And we each have our own personal relationship with the films growing up. Yeah. And there's that element of escapism that, never mind Bond dying, we, we all would like a bit of escapism. But yeah. I think, do you think, would it would it have been a bit better if the previous Craig films had seen him always saving the day and not sort of resigning, not quitting? Because it, it, it's in line with that character more, isn't it? It is a sort of ending that fits more with that. But if if it was done that the Craig's Bond has always been heroic, he's always put governments and you know the mission and his country and the world first, and then at the last minute it's like, I'm sorry, family is even more important to that. That might have been one way of dealing with it, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that's that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good point because I've, I've said the past few years that Spectre is his most Bond, Bond film, but even then it's not really a Bond film because you've only really had... I guess Casino Royale, because even on Quantum, he's got a bit of a personal edge to it. Like every Craig film has either had a personal edge to it, or he's been, as you say, he's resigned, or like every film is like licensed to kill for him. It's like he's he's always got to be off off the the record. And I know, I think, I think I've seen people mention that this is a purpose and weird thing. I would completely agree because I think they set the tone for this back with the world is not enough, where he kind of went a little bit rogue in that film, and then he goes totally rogue and die another day, for at least for half of it. And then, other than Casino Royale, every single film other than that is, is like, Bond isn't, like, you know, I don't think every film should adhere to the formula, but I think there's something to be said for, you know, okay, Bond, here's your mission, and then play with the formula from there. Like, I just, when every film is Bond becoming rogue, then that becomes the formula. And it's just, that is that is the new thing now, apparently, is that he's got to go <laughs> and do his own thing. He's got to be off the record with it. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it would have worked better. I just, I feel it's one of those things where I'm not sure for me personally, and again, I should reiterate, it's, I'm not, I, I can't really critique it 
as bad writing or whatever, even whatever I may think, like maybe it is, but it is for me personally and emotionally, for all those reasons, it just didn't work and it didn't sit right. And I'm not sure if there's any context where it would, though maybe there is. I don't honestly know. I really have to sort of sit and think about that. It's a really good point whether maybe if if he'd been less heroic, but then would he have been James Bond in those other films? I don't know, because James Bond to me is an inherently heroic character, and that's kind of the problem with him just giving up. I don't know. He's never gave up before. Um, and exactly as you say, the very good point to me is really, as you say, that from Casino Royale, they're like, this is a hard reboot. This is a different thing. We're going to bring in, like, they brought the DB5 in. They're going to bring in little things. And they start leaning to that more and more, especially around the 50th anniversary. And I've got no problem with that. But then when you make a film like this, where I've seen so many people say, like, oh, but they use, you know, we have all the time in the world. I'm like, well, why Why is that emotionally? Is it emotionally because of this film or because of Onamanchi's Secret Service? Are you Are you tapping into the emotions from that film in this film? But it's a reboot. It shouldn't matter. It, that didn't happen to Daniel Craig's Bond. It didn't happen. It happened in like the wider, you know, zeitgeist and understanding of film and Bond films. It happened, but it didn't happen in his universe. So why does it matter that his Bond is saying we have all the time in the world? I don't know. It's it's it just didn't. That's another one where it's a bit weird. Like when you start like blurring the boundaries between you know the the, the pre Craig Bond and the Craig Bond. And I've seen several intelligent people. It's like David, David Mitchell and Simon. I'm saying Simon was intelligent. He's a good. He's a good film reviewer. He 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 seemed to not understand the difference between the Roger Moore, Brosnan, Connery era and the Craig era. He's like Bond is dead, and so the Bond we've seen in Spiral of Me is dead. It's like, well, that's not really the case. It's Craig's Bond that's dead. But clearly, if 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 professional film reviewers and intelligent people can't understand the difference between the Craig Bond and the earlier Bonds. What chance is there for a general audience? They're going to be seeing the next film like, but I thought the guy died on an island. What's going on? Why is he back? So I don't know. It's it's a bit strange when they're trying to bring all these other strands from previous Bond films in. It just didn't work for me. Stephen, do you think we've been a bit too emotional and we're connecting it too much with our, what we want as Bond and what we sort of expect of Bond based on growing up as a kid watching these one-off escapist films as well. The odd, the odd one, of course, are, are a bit more pushing the envelope, keep mm-hmm. saying that phrase. Are we in danger of just sort of not being accepting of major change in the franchise, do you think? Yeah, you're all twats. I think we're all guilty of that deep uh, a real sort of subconscious level we're all going knowing or expecting or looking for something that we want um I, I sometimes wonder if i'm more forgiving of this era because i was of an age where when the 90s bond was about i was really ready for change then and i didn't get change so now that there's so much change i wonder if i'm more forgiving because this is going to be a ridiculous comparison i'm going to try and make it anyway i wonder if i'm like I wonder if I'm like a Trump voter that I was so desperate for change <laughs> that I would just have taken anything. You know what I mean? So like America just wanted change and they got this buffoon from reality TV. They were just like, yeah, let's vote for him because I want something different. I wonder if I'm more forgiving of this era because I wanted something different. And the age I was at where I didn't grow up with the 90s bond. So I was at a time where I was like, yeah, I'm old and I'm mature and I'm edgy and I want something different and I wasn't getting it. And then when it came, I thought, oh, yeah. So... 
I wonder if there's a part of that in terms of the continuity and the way it's mixed up. Me personally, I wish that the Craig era had just continued down. I, I see them as two different universes. I see Casino Royale and Quantum as, as what I would call the Craigverse. You know, that's yeah, to me, I wish they'd continued down that path. Yeah. Um, mm. I, as much as I like Skyfall, it is one of my favorite Bond films, flaws and all. It seemed like a course correction that wasn't necessary. Absolutely. The problems with the problems with Quantum for me weren't that there was no Q and there was there was no Money Penny or there was no gadgets. The the problems with Quantum were editing and the script and the mm. strike and that sort of thing. So, mm. as much as I like Skyfall, I wish that they just stuck to their guns and continued down that path because this is where things get muddy and confusing. I mean, I don't mind that there's gadgets in the DB5. A, a lot of fans have said, well, how can you have gadgets in DB5? You won that in the poker game, Casino Royale. It's not unfeasible <laughs> that at some point Q would have said, do you know what, no. I'll, 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 exactly. I'll sort yeah. your car for you. That sort of stuff's fine. Right. Where the water gets a bit muddy, I think, is having a painting of Robert Brown in, in No Time to Die. Because, uh, yeah. to be honest, when I saw the painting in the film, well, we're all super nerds here. We all saw that painting before yeah. the film. yeah. As, oh, as yeah. soon as I saw that painting, I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, Robert Brown. Yeah, great. But it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Ar- Ark Royal, wasn't it? You know, we're all, we're all, I-, I love that. But then the analytical side of my brain watches the film and thinks, mm, that just makes it confusing for people because that suggests that it was the same Bond, but it's definitely not. He's definitely not the same Bond. But I-, I think I'm different to you guys in that I don't have any particular need to have Connery and Brosnan and Moore all be the same Bond. I've never really looked at them that way. I know a lot of fans are really passionate that it's one bond. It was one bond from Dr. No to die another day. It, not really, not if you stop and look at it. I mean, do I look at Brosnan and die another day and think, yeah, 60 years ago, this guy was fighting Dr. No? Absolutely not. I mean, Roger Moore going to visit Tracy's grave for me is is a, is, is a nice scene with his, his enormous flares and his flowers. And, you know, it usually is. You know, I like the scene, but it doesn't. Really, I don't need to see Moore visiting Tracy's grave because I don't associate Moore with Tracy. I associate Lazenby with Tracy. So for me, they're all just little bonds in their own little universes and the little nods where you get them, like the, the dwarf who whistles Goldfinger in On Her Majesty's Secret Service or VJ whistling the, uh, playing the Bond tune on his, whatever it is, his flute. It's just a little, these things are just little touches for fans and I don't need the rock hard community. I don't need them to be the same bond, but I can see why it would be confusing. So I just wish they'd stuck their guns. Mm. And however, that being said, I don't necessarily blame the the creatives or the production team for that. I think that we as fans maybe have a, a, a part to play in this because the bond fandom is so split. It sort of exists in these two camps that want the different things. So when quantum came out, because there was a sort of negative reaction to it, and they're obviously going to look and see what are fans complaining about, what are fans saying. And then when they've got all these fans saying, well, it's not Bond, it's not Bondy enough, there's no gadgets, well, where, where the fuck's Q, where's Money Penny? I want all this stuff. You can't really blame Barbara and Michael for then going, right, okay, next one, let's, let's go back to formula, let's bring this stuff back in. So I almost think that all this stuff, all these problems can be traced back to the fact that there's almost two camps or two, broadly speaking, two camps of expectations of what people mm-hmm. want and, but the franchise has always been like that. You know, Moonraker is not the same film as For Your Eyes Only and License to Kill is not the same film as, as, as Octopussy. There, there have always been this push and this pull. I think what makes it worse with the Craig era is that because he's been Bond for so long and there's been the big gaps that uh, it might make it seem worse or it might magnify it. Whereas with if you didn't like Moonraker, you've only got two years to wait for For Your Eyes Only and then because the turnaround was quicker, people who didn't like the silly film, they'd, well, they'd get the realistic one in two years. Whereas now... As much as Spectre's grown on me, 
I think a lot of fans didn't like Spectre, and that maybe left, left a bad taste in their mouth all those years. No Time to Die is a really funny one in that I don't know how I would describe it. Well, when I first saw it, I don't know how I would describe it to someone because I don't think it's like Casino Royale and I don't think it's like Quantum of Sauce. I don't really think it's like Skyfall. And tonally, it's completely it's, tonally, it's completely different to all those films. It's so much livelier and zippier than Spectre and it's more humorous than... I mean, in some ways, it's very much a Craig film because it's got the, the emotional trauma and it's a bit gritty and it's got people getting strangled and arms snapped and all this sort of stuff and, and Bond goes through all sorts of hell. So it is a Craig film. But then, at the same time, it's funnier and lighter than pretty much all his Bond films. And there's a post-kill one-liner in it, which I absolutely hated with a passion. And it's bigger than all his Bond films. And it's got him on, you know, this global face and a global threat and a baddie with a big layer. So I just feel that someone said this earlier, that it's almost like there's too much going on in it. In it, in that I, and I wonder if they're trying to please too many camps in that, when they sat down and said, what kind of film are we going to make? I wonder if they were thinking, right, well, it's got to be consistent with the Craig films that we've had so far, but let's also try and please the people who aren't too keen on his his stuff. And I just think that's an inherently bad approach and it's a recipe for disaster almost. It's like, just pin your colours to the mast. If you're going to make a Craig film, make a Craig film. Make another Quantum or another Casino. If you want to make a, a sort of classical Bond film, you kind of have to go all out and do that because this kind of yin and yang and in between, it just leaves... Yeah. That was when I first saw the film. My biggest complaint with it, apart from the silly Nanobot stuff, was the tone being all over the shop. Now, I don't want to be too unfair to the film because I think you could look at 80% of Bond films and see the tones all over the shop. I, I love Octopussy, but in one scene, he's shooting a young soldier in the forehead at point blank range, and then two minutes later, he's in a gorilla costume looking at his watch. It's, so all these films have yings and yangs and backwards and forwards, but for No Time to Die, it really hit me that it opens with this sort of chilly, icy scene from a horror movie, and then they go to Matera, and it's like this exotic, romantic spy Thor, which I loved all that stuff, and then he goes to Jamaica, and it felt really like a Fleming novel to me, and then it went to Cuba, and I know everyone loves the Cuba stuff, but for me, that was where the film just went off a cliff the first time I saw it, because... I really don't like the Cuba scene. It, to me, it feels like a skit. It feels like a comedy. You know, he's getting up behind the bar and he's like, whoa, whoa, someone threw a tray at me. It just yeah. felt so much like somebody was holding a board in the air saying, fun, we're going to have fun in this scene. And it just didn't sit with the previous scene. And I wonder if that is a result of Phoebe Waller-Bridge being brought on quite late in the day. And she's a naturally funny writer. We, we, we don't know what she wrote. We don't know exactly we've all speculated. I mean, I could make a list and say she did this, 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 but we don't know for sure what she did. But I wonder if her being brought on late in the day means that you've got some scenes that are much lighter than others because that's just, or funnier than others. Think about the last hour. In the last hour, did you see anything that struck you as Phoebe Waller-Bridge? Because I didn't. But in the first hour when, you know, who's the blonde or... Yeah, yeah. Matters of scene, breeze or something. Yeah. Like I mean, we might be being unfair at purpose and weightier. Maybe they just knocked out of the park <laughs> and wrote some really funny lines. But as soon as I heard those, those, yeah, when I heard those lines, and especially the scene in Bond's bedroom in his strangely unlocked pad in Jamaica, when he's sitting and Naomi's on his bed, I really loved the pattern that scene where they were back and forward, where he's like, "It's a commander, you know that." Well, I'm just here as mm. professional courtesy. You're not being very courteous. All that sort of stuff I really liked, and I just wish that maybe she'd been brought on from the start, and she could have had the same flavor all the way through the film because. To me, it feels very tonally inconsistent. Yeah. 
Just thinking about what you said earlier, Stephen, you know, the whole Fury's only graveyard scene. Yes. And maybe I've never really thought about this myself before, but I almost see, first of all, each Bond film is in its own universe. Yes. Yeah, so so right. you, don't need to, you don't need to see any of the others to see them, apart from the casino and quantum hmm. until, you know, until then, which I'm, I'm not too bothered about. It's almost like even even like the Roger Moore, like you say, from these different films. Apart from the the other characters, the MI six and people like that who are in it, there's no real connection. They're just one off lovely missions, and there isn't much consequence. Do you think that? So when you see him visiting Tracy's grave, I just sort of think he's not visiting Diana Riggs' grave. He's he's visiting the the, the Teresa in his timeline that we haven't seen. We didn't see that bit of his timeline or whatever. It's still in the same. Yeah, I'm not saying they're all in the separate universes because it doesn't really matter to the point then. It's only really mattered whether this is all part of the same universe when you do a re, you know, a reboot when he's inexperienced. That's the only time you have to seriously think about it and say, well, yes, it must be. Because until then, it doesn't really matter too much. Whatever you think about it, you can just enjoy them. It's all in fans' heads, a lot of this stuff, because... When we look into this, we know the reasoning behind this. a lot of this stuff. The fact that they had Tracy at the start was because they wanted to have a reference to Blofeld killing his wife before they killed off Blofeld. And the reason they were killing off Blofeld then was because of the whole rights thing. So it yeah. wasn't because they were thinking, let's connect the dots. They were, it, was, it was a rights issue and they wanted to kill off Blofeld. And if you start to look at it as like Lazenby and Connery and Moore all being the same, then it just brings up problems that, that, aren't, that shouldn't be there, like in On Her Majesty's when he goes in and he's hilly. Well... If he was the same Bond as Connery's Bond, who met him in the previous film, then Blofeld straight away would be like Bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then in Diamonds Are Forever, if mm. if it's the same Bond as it was in the previous film, Diamonds Are Forever actually makes quite a smart move in that it just says he's going to kill Blofeld. It doesn't mention anything about his wife because if it is him going to avenge his wife, it makes Money Penny the most insensitive bitch on the planet. Yeah. She says, yeah. Bring, yeah. bring me back a diamond when you go to, to Holland. So, you sell for a jewel? Yeah, just... <laughs> Yeah, we know the reason why all these things were different. It's, the actor got old and he wanted to leave and they didn't yeah. want to start the series again. That, that's it. Just enjoy the films and they don't need to be the same. Yeah. No, but Killiam does change. That's it now. That changes the, the dynamic. You've got the regular fan, like you say. No no one stayed until the end of the credits in our in our, in our viewing, that I, both viewings that I've seen. Not that I agree with. I don't really think... You know, it's old, old guys wait until the end, you know, oh, you'll love this, honestly, because we, we we know the franchise has just been bought, first of all, don't we? So we know it's going to continue in some guys. And as, I think, John, you said it earlier, maybe, that, well, not today, but you said, it It just says normally says James Bond will return as soon as the credits start. You don't wait until, you know, five minutes of music and credits at the end. Of course, they needed to do that because it might have looked a bit too... You know, they wanted you to sort of think that's it, and then oh no, you know, it really is sort of it's it's changing a lot, and the you're going to have to accept that it's the next Bond must now therefore be a different incarnation because they're not going to have Matilda, even if yeah. Bond did somehow survive, which that would ruin the ending of No Time to Die. So they're not going to do that. There's one train of thought that says, yeah, get over it, just start a new Bond and forget that you've all that's gone before. It's for audiences. Our audience is now going to be expecting this emotional bond where we're going to have to have more of this sort of quitting and emotional stakes, soap opera kind of drama going on in the background, 
Or is, I keep saying the boldest move is just to do a nuts and bolts bomb movie. I think now hmm. the one of the the corners I think they've painted themselves into by killing him off as well um, is exactly something you touched on there. Is what are they going to do next? Because I feel you've got a little bit of a sort of Batman Spider Man syndrome now, whereby you've had Cinderella, which is his origin story, and then you've killed him off. And if you just bring him back now, sort of in media res, like kind of Dr. No was where like, he's clearly not his first assignment. There's references to previous assignments, his Beretta jamming, et cetera, et cetera. Are people going to get confused? Because like I say, you can't just be the, I feel maybe the production team feels that the general audience knows more about bond than they actually do. Cause it's been, it, they've had two bond movies in like 10 years. And I don't think a lot of people really care as much as we do about sort of the nuts and bolts of it. And if they've seen him die at the end of one film, it doesn't really matter to a different actor. Like, are they going to expect another origin story? Are they going to do another origin story? If Do we need another origin story? Kind of like Spider-Man have had it no. twice. Batman have had it like three times almost. And it's just like, you know, do they need to do that? Um, will they feel they need to do that? They compete with sort of these comic movies that insist on having an origin story as the first film. I, I just don't know. Um, the, the origin story, though, no one, no one goes around. Oh, there's a chap here who dresses up as a spider, Spider Man. Why does he do that? The whole, you know, <laughs> people don't do that. People don't dress up as bats, or whatever. So yeah. you have to yeah. explain it more. This guy just works for MI6. It's just mm-hmm. his job. So an origin story is not, not necessary other than do no. it once. Yeah. So there's not as much pressure to to do that. It's just you will now have to get a whole new group of actors. I think what you mm-hmm. and which they've done before, you know, they've changed them quite a bit in the past. You were talking there about how the productions team are looking at the, the casual audiences and do the casual audiences understand and things like that. And not to sound unsympathetic to casual audiences, but I just don't see the point in in looking too deeply into what they know or think or want, because I think that's just a really bad way to go to mm-hmm. go about it. Just make yeah. a good film. Yeah, make yeah, a good yeah. film with yeah. a good cast and good writers and good directors, and people will go and see it. Um, when you start trying to give people exactly what they want, that just ends a lot of the time in Transformers and Fast and Furious. <laughs> just make a good film with talented people. And I, I did listen to that Simon Mayo interview, and I think I lost about five brain cells by the end of it because I know that people will get confused. There will be some people that will say, but he died in the last one. And again, not to sound unsympathetic, but I just couldn't care less what those, if those people are confused or not because... We've had different bonds before. We'll have different bonds again. Yeah. And as much as I've liked Craig, he's not the be-all and end-all bond. We're going to have a new one. And if the new one's good, then let's let's embrace it. It's just, it's got to be good. It's got to be a good, well-made film that's more important than anything. And if it's a nuts and bolts film and it's well-made, then punters will come to it. And I guarantee you, if it's a good film with good word of mouth, then all those questions will fade away really, really quickly because look at all the questions that were hanging in there before Casino Royale. Well, he's blonde, he's not tall enough, uh, he lo- he's ugly, he looks like a henchman. Yeah, it's, really right. it's an origin story. All of that stuff was hanging over the film and in the media for so long. And I'm not imagining this. When the film came out, that stuff just vanished really quickly because word mm-hmm. of mouth is more popular and stronger than anything. It just gets out there. But... Can can I, if it's okay with you guys, can I just talk about some of the stuff that I liked because I feel that we've Absolutely. been pretty negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I said earlier that there was some, I had, I've got lots of issues with the film, but there was some stuff in this that I really liked. 
I got such a rush in this film when he went to the garage and he pulled up the garage and it was the Dalton, is it, I'm rubbish with cars, but is it the Aston Martin? Yeah. And then Hans Zimmer's uh, back to MI6 started blaring and then he drove along the road and got out and got into MI6. I loved that. That was, that for me, I was like, yeah, that that's Bond. I'm watching Bond. I really liked Lashana Lynch and I didn't think I was going to because I reckon that there has been some work on the, the film, not necessarily during COVID, but at some point I think they trimmed the back stuff because if you look at the trailers, there are lines in the trailers that she does not have in the film. And the trailers really suggested that she was going to be super badass, bond your rubbish, I'm the best, yeah. I'm going to come in and do all this stuff. And that worried me. I just don't like the idea of someone new coming in and being and bond being rubbish to make them look good. I just thought that's a yeah. lazy way of going about. But I liked their relationship in this film. I, I thought this, this nice sort of spiky tension and the way that they started off with this antagonistic relationship where they didn't really like each other, but by the end there was this grudging respect. And not to get negative again, but I really wish that the final line between them had been, thanks 007. You know when she's he's, uh, they're driving to the airfield and he says to her, thanks 007. That to me should have been the final yeah, line between the two of them. Yeah. That would have just been the perfect way to kiss off their little dynamic. Like, you know what? You've really helped me. You've, you've, yeah. you've been on the ball you are worthy of being 007. I just don't see the point when they were on the aircraft carrier and she says to M, oh, M, can, can he have his 007 back? Just thought, what? Are we, in are we in kindergarten? Just It was, it was <laughs> yeah. such a nice line in the car. Such Bond a nice line, thanks, Bond 007. Bond's not precious about his 00 number, is he? No. I love that. It's just a number. I love that because yeah. he's more than that. It's uh, And yeah, I love yeah. the fact they didn't retire it when she says, oh, did you think they would retire the number? Just... That to me is so lame. If he's so super that you have to retire, Hall <laughs> of Famer. Yeah, it's really re- cool in the series when Bond almost gets yanked off a case, and you know, like, well, I'll recall Double Eight from Hong Kong. He follows orders. Yeah. It's yeah. just Bond isn't this amazing win at all costs. Well, this guy who wins everything. It's just he's maybe slightly better than the other agents, and him yeah, doesn't yeah. really like to let him know. So the fact that they retire his number is just ludicrous. Sorry, I went off on one there. Because the no, thing right. that got me with that specifically was the leaning into the Fleming You Only Live Twice novel so heavily in this film. Surely that's the perfect opportunity to give Bond the 777, mm. number, the four sevens number from, from You Only Live Twice. And you could even have had some line about, oh, you know, she's 007, he's 7777. Are you not compensating a bit much by having like four sevens instead of just the one? But they didn't go down there, or they're like, oh, as you said, just, oh, no, you're, now you can be 007 again because Bond's always got to be 007. But it's like, why? Why? She's the most seven now. Like, as you say, it's exactly the way they should have went with it. And I honestly think that her character was maybe a little poorly serviced by the end by the script because I, I, I also liked her performance a lot. I think she was one of the the best parts of the of the film. So yeah, like I, I completely agree with everything you just said there. Yeah. I thought I thought Paloma was absolutely brilliant as well. I, I thought the Cuba scene was great. Uh, I don't want to rag on the logistics of mechanical bionic eyeballs and all the rest of it um because it, it's silly but i'll go with it you know because ultimately uh, the issue is not that they have mechanical eyeballs the issue i have is that people will absolutely rag on invisible cars but will call this a masterpiece and it's like no <laughs> we need we need impartiality we need reasoning all across the board and and i haven't got a problem with it it's like it's great i thought can blowfield see the eyeball all the time can blow can blowfield always I, see what he's doing i can only presume so yeah so what is he what does primo do when he wants a bit of you know 
it's <laughs> both. I'd have to watch it, or is it, or is it just Ernst? Just you know, Ernst, shut your eye for a good hour. He just, turn, he just turns the eyeball the other way. <laughs> he pops it out and just turns it away. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought, or my bunts coming around. <laughs> I thought that that scene was great. I thought the action was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I don't agree with the calls that she should have been in more. I think that it's great that she was in for 10 minutes. And the the, the trick to many great performances is leave audience wanting more. Saunders. Saunders. But you remember, you remember <laughs> a bit of a different one, but you remember X-Men, Days of Future Past, and they had Quicksilver, and they had that Quicksilver um, motif that was it was just a cameo performance and he he stopped and he moved everything around and it was unbelievable and everyone went wild for it but everyone was calling for more of it so then when the next one came around x-men apocalypse they did a similar thing brought him back and did a similar, and it wasn't half as good and everyone was moaning oh you spoiled it and it's too much of a good thing and sometimes you've just got to realize that there are certain characters that are only there for one scene, and if they leave a lasting impression in that scene, then they have done their job. If you want to do a spin-off of Paloma, that's fine. I've not got a problem with any of that. That's absolutely fine. Don't say she needed more. She served her purpose brilliantly for what she did, I thought. I also thought that Madeline was better in this film. I bought their relationship more in this film than I did in Spectre, and that's I don't want to rag on Spectre because Tom said that he he likes Spectre. I, I, I never really I never really felt the connection in Spectre. I, I felt it was almost like, yeah, here's here's Bond and his new love. He's going to go off into the sunset with them. Their their, their chemistry for me in Spectre just wasn't there, especially when you compare it to Craig and Eva, Eva Green's chemistry, which for me just pops off the screen. But I definitely thought there was more to them in this film, and it was instantly more uh, in the early scenes in in Matera in Italy when I saw them you know walking up to the uh, I'm not sure it wasn't a church but you know just walking around and having a little dialogue and I, I was I was reassured really quickly I thought oh right cool because you know that the Rome their romance is going to be a big part of this film and that worried me going in thinking well I didn't buy them in the last film I don't really buy them as a couple and if I don't buy them together then I don't buy the whole film but I did think that that worked better in this film. I'm still not convinced she's a a great actress, mm, but I agree. I, yeah, we want to be positive about something. So I think that she was she definitely improved in this film. Yes, <laughs> that was a major hurdle they had to overcome, wasn't it? Mm. Going into this, one of the main criticisms of Spectre was that not just Brofeld, but the "I love you" when they've met a few hours ago, and she's a lot younger, and we were expecting Monica Bellucci perhaps to be the main Bond girl. And then, and the fact that she's <laughs> Mr. White's daughter, you know, it's just it's so contrived. But even, you know, Daniel Craig's super fans hate that. They hate all that stuff and they don't they don't buy it. So to have somehow won most of those people over with their believing that Bond had to die because he loved her so much, it's incredible. It's incre- I mean, they've done an incredible job, haven't they? I mean, I don't buy I, it, but well, I think so. We've been happier. I would have been happier at the start of the film if he woke up with Dave Batista. That would have been pretty smart. <laughs> I think um, I, I, I agree to an extent, Tom. I think that the child adds a heck of a lot of weight to that. Well, last that's why they threw well. it in, didn't they? Exactly. So, so I don't give, so I don't give full credit to Madeline Swan for doing that. I do. 
I do think she was a lot better. But on the flip side of that, she's pretty much the only Bond girl who's ever ever had a second throw of the dice at a film. So, so you know, the speculation's like, well, for, for all those naysayers of Mary Goodnight, well, maybe she might have come back and been an absolute badass. We don't know, do Absolutely. we? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and I quite like Mary Goodnight. I'm, I'm just throwing, picking it out. So, so yeah, she does do well, but she kind of had to do well because she got a chance that no other Bond actress has ever had. That's all for part one of this No Time To Die debate, but part two continues it with Stephen, John and the two Toms. Keep listening. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.